As you hear sounds coming up in your head, thoughts, you simply listen to them as part of the general noise going on, just as you would be listening to the sound of my voice, or just as you would be listening to cars going by, or to birds chattering outside the window. So look at your own thoughts as just noises. This is Billy Hansen, and welcome to another episode of Sauce Talk, a podcast about sports and the mind and trying to live well in general. Got some great feedback on the Max Gordon podcast. If you haven't listened to that yet, you might consider checking it out. Seems like people are really resonating with the story, and it's a long one, but I think it's pretty good, so give that a listen if you haven't yet. Today's episode, I'm going to play the beginning of my audiobook. My new book is coming out in a few days on Tuesday, January 25th. I'm really excited to put it out. And so in this episode, I'll give you a little taste of it. You can get a feel for where the book, what the book's about, the tone of the book, and see if it's something that you might want to pick up and read or listen to the whole thing. So here is the introduction, chapter one and chapter two of my new book. Harder than I thought, easier than I feared. Sports, Anxiety, and the Power of Meditation. Written by Billy Hansen. Narrated by the author. Introduction. When I touched my phone's home button, the screen flashed 4.12 a.m. Pressure rose in my chest. I wanted to roll over and go back to sleep, but I had to be at the gym by 5 at the latest to allow time to have my ankles taped and then warm up for a 5.45 practice. So I lay there flat on my back for 18 precious minutes. The alarm finally buzzed, and I stumbled out of bed, inserted my contacts, and dressed in the warmest, dirty clothes I could find from the pile on my floor. Upstairs, I found my roommate lifelessly stirring a Chibana yogurt. We communicated our shared misery by doing nothing to acknowledge one another. As we left the house, I grabbed a protein bar. Dressed much like Eskimos, we speed-walked across the campus towards the gym. I thought about what I wished was different, longing for comfort and ease, like lazy Sunday mornings with mom's egg burritos and Seinfeld reruns. But then, back in reality, I counted the months left in the basketball season. I envied teammates who were lucky enough to be injured and could miss practice. Why couldn't I catch some luck and sprain an ankle? My mood grew darker when I realized that I was unprepared for a chemistry test at 10, Instead of napping after practice, I'd have to cram for an exam. I felt sure I'd have another lousy practice. What would I do if I missed another layup in the weave drill or airballed a shot in our scrimmage? Entering the gym, I wondered if coach would take my scholarship away during the offseason. Then I was distracted by Morning Bill, along with a friendly smile from my friend and teammate Jarrett. Even though I'd seen his morning smiles for months, the cheerfulness surprised me. What's up, man, was the best reply I could think of. With my feet extended past the end of a bench, our athletic trainer taped my ankles with the same repetitious monotony that I experienced when I brushed my teeth. He seemed no happier than I was to be at the gym at five in the morning, but the firm security of taped ankles was a subtle pleasure in the midst of my anxiety. Based on how we dressed down in silence, 
an outside observer would have found it easy to estimate our team's record. Out on the court, some teammates were shooting around. Hands feeling stiff and awkward, I grabbed a ball off the rack and dribbled towards the hoop. After looking up to the balcony at Coach's office to make sure he wasn't watching, I took a breath and held it. A few feet from the basket, I tossed up a shot that ricocheted off the rim and bounced away. At least I'd hit the rim. I had time for a few mid-range shots before Coach arrived. The sight of him induced a mild state of panic, and my goal became the usual, surviving practice without exposing myself as the inferior player I'd somehow become. Day after day, this had been my mindset through my sophomore season. Two years earlier, things had been very different. In high school, I'd led the state in scoring and broken multiple records and made 10 three-pointers in a single game. Now I couldn't imagine ever playing that well again. The best I could hope to do was hide my feelings from my coach, my friends, and my family, and somehow manage to survive my college basketball career. As a sophomore at Regis, I found myself hopelessly miserable, and as a senior, I enjoyed the most satisfying season of my life. My path from depression and anxiety to joy and peak performance was unconventional. I saw a therapist who taught me the practice of meditation and encouraged me to face my problems instead of shrinking from them. I formed a new, durable sense of identity. I modified my habits with drugs, partying, and my phone. I read great old books, and I developed an entirely new attitude toward my sport and my life. Since graduating, I've been committed to meditation, studying the practice and working with other young athletes, helping them develop their own practices and face the same problems I faced in sports and life. In this book, I have three primary objectives. One, I want athletes to understand that their confidence issues, insecurities, self-doubt, feelings of imposter syndrome, and tendency to wish days, weeks, and entire seasons away are commonplace in athletics. I explore new, effective ways for young people to relate to their fears and imperfections, allowing them to overcome their anxieties, find peak performance under pressure, and connect deeply with the beauty of their sport. Two, I want parents and coaches to gain a clearer understanding of what the modern athlete endures so they can better support their children and players as they deal with such issues as pressure to perform, distractions on their phones, party cultures, and more. Three, and most importantly, I hope this book inspires both players and coaches to commit to mental training and specifically meditation. Meditation helps athletes and teams achieve a competitive advantage and results in happier, more resilient players who are better able to endure the inevitable ups and downs of an athletic career. When mental training is integrated into athletic culture, it will also prepare young people to become happier, more productive adults. First, I tell my story of mental collapse and recovery, highlighting what I learned along the way. Then, to complete the book, I offer advice relevant to athletes, coaches, and parents on how to cultivate successful athletic careers that set up young people for well-lived lives. Epigraph, quote, but in the big octagonal hole in the ground with its serrated scalloped concrete sides, it was not important to the spectators who was fighting or who would win. It was only important that the whiny air and excitement of anticipated conflict be enjoyed, bringing back the distant continent of home where all the grave young high school athletes who, despite their coaches with their turned-up topcoat collars and conflicting visions of Newt Rockney movies and jobs they feared to risk, 
fought frantically with the magnificent foolishness of youth as if the whole of life depended on this game and who were still young enough to cry over a defeat, an illusion that their coaches never shared, a thing that like Santa Claus, they themselves would lose all too soon before the widening range of vision and the knowledge that their loyalty was a commodity and could be shifted easily, and a thing that the men who perched on the concrete of the boxing bowl remembered fondly, and their own hunger for a return to innocence. James Jones, From Here to Eternity Chapter 1, Ghosty on First 1. As with so many kids, sports were very important to me during my childhood and adolescence. Ashland, Oregon's youth athletic world wasn't perfect, but it was close enough. The local Little League was well-funded, affordable, and well-run. The YMCA offered soccer, basketball, and flag football leagues. Many parents volunteered their time as coaches and administrators. I was relatively tall and coordinated, and athletics came naturally. I enjoyed competing with friends from age five on. In elementary school, I played baseball, basketball, and rotated between flag and tackle football. Our teams were successful against neighboring towns, and I also enjoyed personal success. To push myself, I joined leagues with players older than I was. When I was 11, we won the District 12-year-old Little League Championship for the first time in over a decade, and we repeated as champions when I was 12. I often dominated in youth basketball, and my early success was both a blessing and a curse. It gave me a sense of confidence and purpose, but also led to an inflated ego. 2. Looking back, I realized that I spent my childhood happily obsessed with sports, often returning to class with grass stains and skinned knees after hard play at recess. Like millions of kids, I followed professional teams and their star players, and often went to school wearing a Derek Jeter, Peyton Manning, or Allen Iverson jersey. My dad fostered my love for sports by not turning participation into work. He took me to professional sporting events and stood with me outside stadiums before and after games so I could see and sometimes meet my heroes. We collected sports memorabilia together. He offered positive reinforcement, and instead of pushing me to practice long and hard, he helped me enjoy myself so that practicing hard was my own idea. I owe much of my early success to the love for sports he cultivated. If games had been too much like work, and if pressure had been applied to me at an early age, I doubt I'd have spent countless hours shooting all alone on my outdoor court or asking my dad to throw me batting practice until the sun went down at the end of a long summer day. Another benefit was growing up in a neighborhood where my friends and I were free to play without adult supervision. During the summers, we rode our bikes to a local park to spend hours playing wiffle ball, touch football, basketball, or soccer. We negotiated our own rules as we went and learned to resolve conflicts. The hundreds of hours we spent together, simply having fun, were indispensable to my development as a young athlete. Three. Many or most young people find their middle school years challenging, and I was no exception. I was lucky enough to attend a good school, to have close friends, and to enjoy continued athletic success, but I suffered from the normal insecurities. I was so desperate for validation that I needed everyone to know that I was the best athlete around. My lack of confidence must have come across as arrogance. I wrestled with my own mind. I tried to appear humble, but needed people to know how athletically talented I was. During adolescence, my attitude towards sports morphed from focusing on enjoyment to enhancing my reputation by playing on winning teams and recording impressive statistics. I dreamed about performing well enough at the Division I college level to play professionally after that. Was I as good as current NBA players were when they were in seventh grade? 
In eighth grade, I worried because I couldn't dunk yet. I also wondered whether I'd have a better chance at going pro by specializing in a single sport. Four, my grandfather, to me he's Opa, was a high-level football, basketball, and volleyball player in his day. I was surprised when he told me that when his high school basketball season ended, he didn't touch a ball again until his first practice the following season. He'd show up for basketball a few days after his final football game and could barely make a free throw. The same was true for football and volleyball. He practiced little, if at all, during the off-seasons. As a teenager in Hawaii, he spent his summer surfing, spearfishing, dating tourist girls, and being a kid. In other words, he had fun. He explained that enjoying the off-season was no disadvantage athletically because nobody else in Hawaii was training during off-seasons either, thus creating a level playing field. Later in his life, and far from Hawaii, Opa saw the same relatively low-key state of affairs in both college and professional football. Few, if any, college players lifted weights or worked out during their off-seasons. In the late 1950s, an NFL player in the locker room after practice was likely to light up a cigarette, and so long as he quote-unquote did his job, the coaches didn't object. By the time I reached ninth grade, I had coaches from three sports trying to persuade me that I should be focusing on their sport full-time and giving up the others. My summers were spent bouncing around between baseball and basketball games, with travel tournaments in each sport, wondering all the while whether I should be playing football. A free day to go wakeboarding with my friends at the lake was a rare and appreciated gift. I felt as if I wasn't training enough in either baseball or basketball, and wondered if I could get good enough in either sport to impress college scouts. Chapter 2. Varsity 1. By the time I started high school, I developed a reputation as a talented player and an arrogant one. In middle school, I'd brag to classmates that I'd be a varsity player as a freshman, and the boast traveled to high school with me. Upperclassmen didn't like it, so when basketball tryouts began, I felt a coldness in the gym. The JV coach seemed to be singling me out with his criticisms, and older players were hostile to me during drills and scrimmages. When assigned to the JV basketball team with sophomores and juniors, I reined in my arrogance as best I could. I didn't say much during practice, and worked hard, and was accepted by the other players in the coaching staff. I played well early on, and was soon called up to the varsity, where I broke the freshman points in a single game record, and contributed sporadically throughout the season. After my successful freshman year of basketball, I was placed on the JV2 baseball team. My friend and classmate Ethan was an excellent athlete, and we had a rivalry between us. He made the varsity baseball team as a freshman, and it tormented me that I was left behind. After the intensity of varsity basketball games, JV2 baseball felt like a waste of time. I thought about quitting, but ended up glad I didn't. 2. My goal as a sophomore in basketball was to play in the rotation and contribute, and I exceeded my expectations. I found a rhythm on offense early and often, scored 24 points in the first half of a preseason game, finished the year as the team's leading scorer, and was named to the all-conference first team. We won our conference and earned a home playoff game to determine who would qualify for the state tournament in Eugene. The day before our big game, I was featured in a front-page article in the local paper titled, Hansen, The Real Deal. Two quotes from the article. Quote, Hansen, sophomore or not, can do more than just handle pressure. He seems to thrive on it. End quote. Quote, Ashland High boys basketball coach Larry Kellums remembers the night Billy Hansen, the sophomore upstart, emerged as Billy Hansen, the all-star caliber, cold-blooded shooting go-to player, end quote. With the home gym packed for the game, 
my blood was anything but cold. I was intensely nervous and it hurt my performance. After missing my first five shots, I felt fearful and useless on the court. I didn't want the ball and finished the game going 0 for 8 and pointless in a three-point loss. I felt devastated for letting the seniors down and embarrassed that so many people had seen me fail in the biggest game of the season. The performance should have made me try to understand what had happened to me and why, but I forced the embarrassing performance out of my mind and moved ahead to baseball. In my first varsity game, I went 4 for 4, including a triple and a home run, which sparked a successful season. I was named second team All-State first baseman and posted one of the highest batting averages in the state. We had a talented team and made it to the state championship game where we were shut out by Andrew Moore, who went on to pitch at Oregon State and then in the major leagues. Nervous again, I went 0 for 3 against Moore and again did my best to forget about my low level of play under pressure. But problems can't be solved by pretending they don't exist. 3. As a sophomore, I went through a rite of passage experienced by millions of teenagers every year. I'd never been drunk, and some upperclassmen friends convinced me to attend my first high school party. They picked me up from home, and, the old story, we headed toward a student's house whose parents were gone for the weekend. Inside the front door was a dimly lit room with loud music thumping and upperclassmen standing in groups holding large red plastic cups. The pungent smell of pot smoke was pervasive. I followed my friends through the living room and out the back door, where some teammates and classmates were standing by a fire and drinking. My first appearance at the party brought friends across the yard to greet me, some with red cheeks and glossed over eyes, whose breath smelled sweet and somehow sinister. My best friend since elementary school dragged me back into the kitchen for my first shot of vodka. Luckily, there was some orange juice available to wash the harsh taste out of my mouth. After a few shots, I wandered around, feeling more uncomfortable than I ever had on a basketball court or baseball field. While no one else seemed to have problems blending in with the crowd, I had no idea where to stand or what to say. I stuck close to my friends and had a few more shots. When we left, I decided that partying wasn't for me. Based on that experience, I took a stance against alcohol and drugs that lasted through high school. When my friends nagged me about not going to parties, I told them I was committed to athletics and didn't want to ruin my chances of playing in college. But looking back, I realized that avoiding the party scene had more to do with my social anxieties than it did with my commitment to sports. I'm not sorry that I waited until college to start partying. It's common knowledge that teenagers don't do much of anything in moderation, and that drugs and alcohol can cause long-term harm to the adolescent brain and body. I had teammates and friends who partied hard every weekend. A few of them showed up stoned to school and practice, and suffered in both academics and sports because of it. The possible downside to my puritanical high school days is that it might have set the stage for my abuse of alcohol in college. 4. Quote, Vronsky, meanwhile, in spite of the complete realization of what he so long desired, was not perfectly happy. He soon felt that the realization of his desires gave him no more than a grain of sand out of the mountain of happiness he had expected. It showed him the mistake men make in picturing to themselves happiness as the realization of their desires. Leo Tolstoy, Anna Karenina. If someone had guaranteed me before my sophomore year began that I'd lead the basketball team in scoring and be named the second best first baseman in the state, I'd have been elated, certain that my well-being and happiness would drastically improve. But as that year unfolded, my expectations changed along with my circumstances. Instead of enjoying my success, I worried about it disappearing and looked toward an uncertain future with anxiety. 
In the summer after my sophomore baseball season, our Legion baseball team won the state tournament and advanced to the regionals in Montana. Ashland had won state before, but never regionals, so our obvious goal was to win it for the first time. We stayed together in a barn, converted into living quarters in rural Montana, and drove vans into town for each game. The week was pressure-packed and exciting. In the double elimination tournament, we won four of our first five games and made it to the championship game against a team with a star pitcher. The night before the big game, we had an emotional team gathering and, full of nervous anticipation, all of us had trouble sleeping. I'd played well so far and was fixated on helping Ashland win its first regional championship. If that happened, I was sure I'd be happy for a very long time. Our hot hitting continued and we enjoyed a comfortable lead throughout the game. After our ace pitcher struck out their final batter, the traditional dog pile ensued on the mound. Then we posed for pictures with the championship trophy. To make matters even better, from all the teams in Oregon, Washington, Nevada, Idaho, and Montana, I was named the tournament MVP. Maybe nothing's ever perfect, but this seemed as close as anything could get. I was relatively happy during our celebration, but I was already distracted by intrusive thoughts. How could I use my MVP status to gain the attention of college scouts? What was the best way to post my MVP photo on Facebook? Later, at the local pizza shop with teammates and parents, I felt somehow disconnected to everyone and to the moment. Thoughts about how I could leverage the experience obliterated my enjoyment of it, because the beauty of the moment didn't matter all that much if it didn't lead to some later, greater end. Okay, thank you for listening. If you want to keep going, you can pre-order a copy now, either in print, ebook, or audiobook format. And there is a link to the book in the show notes to this episode, or you can visit billyhanson.net forward slash book to pre-order a copy. And I would really appreciate that. If you know another athlete or coach or parent who you think would be helped or might be interested in the book, you should send them this podcast or a link to the book. Thank you for listening, and I'll see you here for the next episode of Sauce Talk. Sauce.